Welcome to The Truth in Asarit. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thank you for listening, sharing, and subscribing to this podcast. And if this is your first time checking out The Truth in Asarit, welcome. Take some time to explore the archive. There's a lot of great gems in there, great guests. And maybe you'll hear one of your favorite um, artists, creatives, personalities sharing a story in a different way than you've heard before. So today, today is going to be a treat. Join me, won't you, as I venture into the world of media and journalism with an author, musician, educator, and NPR's first ever full-time TV critic who offers more than just that surface-level analysis fits right in with the truth in his art. Please welcome Eric Deggins. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. We got two bald dudes, black guys, glasses. <laughs> it's just it's just to set the visual stage for folks. Beards. It's 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 all yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> and I just got off a Zoom call an hour ago with three brothers <laughs> who were all bald and glasses and and beards. So it's it's a thing. It, it works. It works. Um, I'm I'm moving into sort of this next phase where I'm kind of comfortable with the bald head. I was rebelling against it for a while. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I didn't have a choice. You know, I, I always wanted to see this as a reference. I'm already dating myself. You, you're not going to know this guy, but I always wanted to be like Stoney Jackson. If you remember him, uh, he was a brother that had the the, the uh, Jerry Curl mullet. I always wanted that. <laughs> like basically the character that Eric LaSalle plays in Coming to America was actually based on Stoney Jackson, who was an actor who looked like that back in the day. And uh, uh, so I always wanted that look. But, you know, my hair did not cooperate. <laughs> that is one of the funniest things I've heard all week. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. And it's it's funny because like um, you know we're sort of in this this phase and and as I think about sort of that moment when I was like I need to shave it, bro. So before we get into like the the, the main crux of the the convo here and you know get to more like you know hot bald head talk, uh, <laughs> I I, I want to you know give you the space to to introduce yourself and I and I think sure. it's a lot of I think it's a lot of power in doing that. Um, you know, sure. you, you have people who say, hey, you're a podcaster. I'm like, actually, I'm an audio wizard, if you must know. There you go. I like that. <laughs> so I want to give you that space, please. Yeah. So um, the, the top line, of course, is that uh, I'm TV critic and media analyst and guest host for National Public Radio, uh, where I talk about TV a lot, talk about streaming a lot. And I do it in a lot of different ways where I do um, reviews and trend stories and think pieces about what I think is going on, but I also do feature stories and interviews and, uh, and even news stories where I do reporting. Uh, and that's that's the bulk of my work. But I'm also uh, an author. I've, I've written a book about how media and prejudice and stereotypes and, and society work together. Uh, and I teach a course at Duke University that's sort of centered on the concepts that are in that book. Uh, I'm also doing some adjunct teaching at Indiana University. So I have this side where I do public presentations and teaching, where I try to talk about some of the ideas and issues and concepts that I wrestle with in my journalism, I also try to talk to them to actual people and kind of convince them of what's going on, warn them about what's going on, educate them about what's going on. And then on top of all of that, uh, I've been a musician for 40 years. I play drums and bass guitar and sing, and I'm working with a few different bands here in the St. Petersburg area right now, just trying to keep uh, just trying to do it occasionally to keep my foot in it. And because I feel like that's an essential part of my identity. 
uh, and I don't want to lose it uh, just because it's it, it is really hard to maintain a working band in today's you know uh, post COVID in an economic environment. Well, thank you, uh, yeah, you Renaissance man, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, like definitely that 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 sort of last portion there, all of it, but definitely that last portion. It it makes me think of sort of. I'm, I'm a week removed from going to a small press expo and being there around all the comics and all that stuff. And I'd, I'd interviewed um, Warren there, Warren Bernard, and it just kind of dipped me back into what I wanted to be when I was a kid. I wanted to be a comic book artist. And it's one of those things where, you know, I tried to cut that piece off. It didn't work. I tried to go to art school and it was just like, your work is childish. It was like, I'm 11. So <laughs> it's one of those things. But, you know, I've been doing this for the last like 15 years. And in that time, I was able to rediscover my love of comics. So instead of trying to do all of it, having that, I guess, that time that has passed, I started writing a comic about cat attorneys and it's ridiculous, but I'm able to get out some of my humor and there's movie references and all of that good stuff in it. And it's ultimately I'm getting at it's the, the Austin Cleon thing. You don't want to cut away pieces of your creative personality. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's hard sometimes to find a bandwidth to do things and it is easy to get in a situation where you're shortchanging um, some of the things that you're doing because you're doing so much, but um ultimately if you can find a balance and you can be responsible about it i mean I, i'm i'm lucky in that the job i have is really flexible so when i need to work uh, when i need to really focus on it i can really focus on it and you know this week i've been generating a lot of stories and i've been very focused on um you know getting pieces published and things like that and i've been working a lot of hours so you know if i want to spend time over the weekend playing music I don't feel like I'm shortchanging my journalism because it gives me uh, a chance to focus on something different for a little while. But you do have to be uh, mindful of all the energy and where you're putting it. And it helps for me that, you know, I have four kids, but they're all grown. So I don't have to make time for, you know, family in the way that I used to have to do, um, you know, about 10 years ago. So it makes sense. Yeah. So. Diving in a bit, um, could you share like an early experience that, you know, comes to mind, like within your career, that's kind of like help shape and like maybe navigate or point in the direction of the career you're in now as far as uh, cultural criticism? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I guess, you know, we, we love, you know, these moments, but but for me, it was a little bit of a process. And, and, and I do remember very consciously when I was in eighth grade, maybe a freshman in high school, um, a few different things kind of happened. I, I realized what I was good at, and I realized that I needed to figure out what I wanted to focus on through high school and college. What did I want to study? in order so that when I was done with that, I would have a decent job. And my father had been a columnist for um, the local newspaper. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. He'd been a columnist for this paper called the Post Tribune, the biggest paper in the city. And um, he he was, you know, he, he would do this column that was kind of a collection of here's what's happening at the nightclubs. Like basically, 
um, he would tell Gary what black Gary was doing, you know, all, what all the black folks were doing, all the clubs that black folks hung out at, all the club, all the social events that black folks were involved with. And he went around with a with a camera and would take pictures and, and did it all, you know, and just give them the column like kind of produced and they would just run it. And then later he did that for a uh, black independent newspaper in town. And so I realized that it was possible to have a job at a newspaper where you wrote a regular column and, and you got paid for it. <laughs> and I figured I was good at writing and I was uh, becoming a musician. I was starting to play drums at that point. And I thought I was pretty good at it. And uh, I was also uh, something of an artist, but I knew that I wasn't good enough to pursue that as a profession. So I just kind of put that to the side and I said, what kind of job could I have where I can write and I could take advantage of my knowledge of music where well, I could be a music critic? So I kind of aimed myself at that, where I figured what I would do is I would pursue in my studies journalism and being a critic. And then uh, I would also pursue my music. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I did that all through high school and I got to college. And fortunately, Indiana University was an in-state school, but it was also one of the top journalism schools in the country. And so I was studying at one of the top journalism schools in the country, but I was also at a school that had one of the best music schools in the country. So I was meeting all these incredible musicians and we were forming bands because uh, with the Greek scene, the the um, fraternity and sorority scene, there were, there were tons of gigs that paid well um, that you could get if you could put a band together that sounded good. And there were also two major nightclubs where you could put on shows with real production, you know, big sound systems, everything mic'd, uh, lighting systems and things like that. So um, eventually I put together a band that was successful enough that we got signed by Motown when I was in college. Wow. And, and I took two and a half years off and I made a record that never came out because about a year after we got signed, Barry Gordy sold uh, Motown to MCA and a bunch of the ice got dropped, including us. But I had the experience of getting that record deal going to chicago recording a record um tussling with the the uh the record label trying to get them to put it out um we had we had had an independent single that had done well uh throughout the midwest and was also getting some airplay in in nightclubs in england and we really wanted to capitalize on that um but it, you know it didn't quite work out and i learned that i didn't want to be um a professional musician i didn't feel like i was uh, technically schooled enough. I, I couldn't really read, read music well, and I wasn't patient enough. And uh, and and and, if, and I just felt like I was a better journalist than I was a drummer, even though I thought I was a pretty good drummer. Uh, so uh, so then I just turned myself towards towards uh, journalism and pursued that. But you know, in being a when I was a, I was a pop music critic for probably about three or four years uh, at the beginning of my career, and. Uh, I knew what these artists were going through because I had done it, you know. And 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 when I moved to um, to St. Petersburg, Florida, to be the pop music critic for the St. Petersburg Times, it was the last pop music crit critic job I had before I became a TV critic. Um, there were three bands in the Tampa Bay area that had major label record deals, and I told my editor, "I'm going to hang out with each of these bands." And I can tell you after I hang out with them whether or not they're going to have their record deals at the end of the year. And this would have been uh, like the summer, beginning of the summer. So I did that. I got to know each of the bands and did kind of interviews with them, covered them a little bit. And I went back to my editor. I said, they're all going to get dropped by the end of the year. 
<laughs> and uh, because I could tell they were having the same conversations with their label that I was having with my label mm-hmm. when we were in Motown. I, I could tell they weren't, the labels weren't that interested. They weren't giving them money for tour support. When they made their record, they wouldn't spend the money to let them hire top flight producers. You could tell when a record label is not, has signed a band and they sort of say, well, if they do good, they do good, but we're not going to give them that many resources, you yeah. know, which is kind of what happened to everyone else. Band. So, so, uh, so I just waited. And by the end of the year, they'd all been dropped. And we did a big story about how uh, all these major label bands that came out of Tampa Bay area all got dropped. Um, so it was just an example of me bringing my experience to bear as a critic, but it, but it all sort of went back to me thinking, you know, what am I good at? And what and how can I channel that into a career where I can get a steady paycheck? And it became writing for newspapers, but you know, morphed into what I'm doing now, which is working for NPR. I mean, that is like I've asked a question like that of many people, and that is the best fully formed <laughs> that I've got. It's like, man, I did some stuff, and then here I am. I'm just like, wow, that is great. A lot of insight. I was pretty, I was pretty deliberate. Um, because I always feel like, and I tell this to students all the time, if you, if you have a goal, then it makes a lot of decisions for you, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, I knew when I went into college that I was gonna, that I, that I had a two track thing going on. I was going to pursue my journalism study to get my journalism degree, but I was also going to pursue being a musician. And when it got to the point where we had a major label record deal on the table, I told, I told my parents, look, I'm. I'm quitting school for a while and I'm going to do this. And then when it does, if it, if it works out, then I'm going to be a professional musician. And if it doesn't work out, then I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my degree. And like, nobody believed me. My, 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 my mom was very skeptical. My, my dad wasn't sure what to make of it. The, um, the, uh, guidance counselor in the journalism school was convinced I wasn't coming back. And I told all of them, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and, and I did, you know, and I, and I had very clear sort of, I had a very clear sense of, I would, I will know when this ride is over, or I, at least I will know when it's time for me to get off of this ride mm-hmm. and, and, and go back. And, and, and the, the best thing about it, I almost felt like the universe was kind of telling me I was doing the right thing. So, um, so we lost our record deal and I had to go to the band and say, look, I'm, I'm leaving. I was a founding member. It was a big blow to everybody. And I, I felt bad having to do it, but you know, I got to go back to school. I got to get my degree. I got to start my life as a journalist. So, so they hired a different drummer and, and I went back to school and I played with a band that was just local. Um, and, um, they, the band that I used to be with that was signed in Motown, they got a gig to play for two months in Japan at a, a club that was a homage to um, R&B music and black music. They loved bringing over bands with black people and having them play, you know, real authentic uh, American R&B music. Oh, yeah. So, um, but the problem was that the drummer that replaced me was in dental school and he couldn't leave uh, school for two months. Yeah. And I found out that I could do my last three credits by correspondence. And I said, okay, I'll come back to the band and I'll do the, I'll do that two month gig. I'll do my last three credits correspondence and uh, I'll get my degree. And, you know, when we come back, you know, when, when we come back to town, you know, I'll, I'll start my journalism career and the guy who replaced me can rejoin the band. And that's basically what happened. And, and so I got a chance to, to go to Japan and play for 
two months in Osaka at a club in Osaka. And it, you know, it was an incredible experience musically and culturally. Um, this this old R&B band, the, the SOS band, you may remember them. Yes. Um, they played a gig in Osaka. And the thing is, like, there's hard, there's not that many Westerners in, in, in Osaka, and there's really not that many Black Westerners, right? So all we had to do was go to the venue and say we were with the band, and they were like, <laughs> we didn't even have to pay. They just assumed we were with the band. And, and then when the gig was over, we went up to the stage, and we told the guys, hey, we're plan tonight if you want to come see us and so they came and the management set out a table in front of the stage and they got to hang out for free and 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 uh and eat and drink because you know they were touted as like vips and then they came on stage and played with us and the thing was uh the single that got assigned to motown was inspired by the sos band they'd always been a band that had really uh motivated us in terms of their sound and their and their compositions and so to have them on stage, we did. We played uh, "I'll Be Good to You." Um, you know, um, at the time, uh, Ray Charles had, had, had redone it with uh, Quincy Jones, and so it was a hit at the time. So we played it, and those guys sat in, and it was just, you know, it was a great. Again, it was a great, like, full circle moment. You know, yeah. I could never have imagined when I started this band at Indiana University that we would be playing a club in Osaka, having had been signed to Motown Records. And here we are jamming with our idols, the SOS band. I mean, it was, it was amazing. So, um, but but I was there because I had a goal and I let that goal make my decisions for me. And I would never close myself off from opportunities if they presented themselves. But, you know, I had goals. So I'm getting my degree. Anything that fits into me getting that degree that I can, you know, take advantage of, that's great. But I'm getting my degree. And and at that time, by the way, I didn't also didn't say mention that uh, I had done an internship at a paper in Pittsburgh the summer before. So I already had a job offer from them. So I knew that when I finished the, the gig in Osaka, I would come back to Indiana University. I'd play for a couple of months with the band and then I would graduate. And then I, I had a job waiting for me at a, at a newspaper in Pittsburgh. And all that lined up because I had goals and they made decisions easy for me. So, Wow. Thank you. Um, and and it's, 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 it is that full circle moment where you're able to, you know, kind of follow your vision, follow like, or as I like to call, like to ride that wave. That's what I call all the time. Um, especially yes. when I'm doing this, I see sort of like, this is what I want to do. And anything that fits, I always say, does it fit? And then I kind of go from there. And you had the added like punch of being able to go to Japan, you know, sub in for like Floss Mitchell or whatever the dentist sort of name would be <laughs> and, and kind of do your thing. That's a lot better than his actual name. I'm about to tell him that. I'm going to start calling him that. What's <laughs> up, <So>, Floss? <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm always with bits. Um, so. It, let, let's talk a little bit about um, the the NPR role. Let's let's talk a bit about that. Um, I'm reading first full time TV critic. Right. How, what? How? <laughs> like like tell, tell I know I know that. it's it, it's really it's really interesting. I mean, you know, some of that is like um, uh, for a long time, TV was kind of looked down upon as a as a lesser. Uh, art compared to film, so in, so NPR had a had a film critic uh, for twenty five years before they hired me uh, to cover TV, um, but it took you know um, I started 
freelancing. You know, NPR used to have people come on and do commentaries who weren't staffers because NPR was pretty much focused on news reporting and having people who were reporting the facts and not really presenting their opinions. So when it got to the point where uh, they did have a film critic, Bob Mondello, who's amazing, um, and, but but they didn't have hardly anybody else on staff whose job it was to say what they thought about something, to, 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 to regularly issue opinions um beyond reporting so what they would do is have people come on as as uh, contributors and there was a, uh, a a novelist who did it uh i always mangle his name so i'm gonna try to say it but um uh, and then um uh there was a guy there was a legendary sports writer for sports illustrated who used to do sports commentary and then um i sort of joined the lineup um do talking about TV because I had run into a, uh, a friend of mine became I got hired by NPR as an executive and I was visiting him at a conference and I ran into another editor at NPR and I said you know it's, it's it's weird to me that you guys don't cover TV that much and this would have been in 2010 I think and I was like you know um, you you should have somebody like reviewing all the great TV that's out there and. Uh, and and he basically i gave him my card and then a few months later he said well send me some ideas and then i did and then we hit on this thing where every three or uh once a, it got to be once a week it started out three times a month and then it got to be once a week where i would do um reviews of whatever was on tv and it just happened to coincide with the rise of netflix and you know um cable tv was already exploding so we were seeing hbo and showtime do all this interesting stuff in addition to TNT and TBS and all these other um, cable TV channels. So TV was kind of exploding right when I pitched them on letting me come in and, and do reviews. And then after a while, it just seemed obvious that there was so much going on. You know, when, when Netflix started offering original programming in 2013, they debuted um, House of Cards, the American version of House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. And... Uh, and, and all of a sudden you had in the streaming space what HBO and Showtime were doing in the cable TV space and, you know, uh, TV expanded even more. And so it became obvious that they kind of needed a person on staff to do that. And so the person who was my regular editor and I sort of hatched this plan to uh, convince NPR that they needed a TV critic and and then, um, you know, position me so that if they did decide to hire a TV critic, uh, I'd be best positioned to apply for it. And that's basically what what happened. And so I got hired in 2015 after I'd already been um, kind of freelancing. I, I, I don't think it was 2010. It wasn't that long ago. So I, I had been I'd been uh, contributing for a couple of years. So it was probably like 2012 or 2013 when I started doing that. And then. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm, it was 2010. It was 2010 when I when I had that conversation and I started contributing and then in 2013 was when i got hired that's what it is i got hired in in 2013 right when uh netflix started offering original content um and uh and now coming up on um uh, in a few weeks it'll be my 10th anniversary at npr oh yeah we're, we're, we're definitely going to have this episode out for that <laughs> cool 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 and it, it, it's it's great to to hear it like you know being around and being in sort of that that space like you know I, I look at the stuff that I'm doing and covering this and, you know, been a podcaster for 15 years, but been doing this podcast for about four, but the volume is 
pretty insane. It's like 700 episodes right now. And, you know, folks are like, yeah, you know, we just keep you in the mix. And I'm like pitching, repitching and like, hey, I'm a guy that does this. And, you know, I have a background in marketing. So I even try to do the not making someone feel stupid, but doing this sort of thing. Why hire someone from accounting to do a podcast? Bring in a podcaster. Try yeah. to really position myself. Exactly. It, it's it's within the the sort of roadmap and the the vision of this is a thing that a lot of people are doing, but it's not a thing that a lot of people do, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like um, the way you distinguish yourself these days in this space is constancy and reliability and, and constantly providing content. Um, I mean, that's why, you know, to, to take a little bit of a detour, you know, all, all these people are trying to judge whether or not a platform like Threads, for example, is worthwhile. And I keep saying, like, you got you got to use it for a while before you can tell whether or not it's going to be uh, a suitable supplement or replacement for something like Twitter. Uh, because Twitter didn't become Twitter overnight. People expect to jump on these platforms and have them immediately be what they want them to be, but that's just not possible. What you have to do is you have to use the platform for a while and you have to you have to have a reliability and a constancy to your presence before you can really figure out if it's having an impact with the public, if people are connecting with you there, and if it's worth the energy that it takes to maintain that regular presence in that in that space, and and that, so that takes a lot of that takes a lot of effort, and it's not something you're going to know in two or three days or even two or three weeks of messing around with the platform, yeah. and, and and you know that's the the yin and the yang of the modern media moment. That, you know our attention our attention spans are shorter than ever, and people expect results. Results uh, faster than ever, but the results really only come to people who are consistent and constant and reliable. You know, Fresh Air has been doing what it does for a very long time, and and it's always there for you. You know, and you can you can you can tune into Fresh Air today, and you can hear that it is different and more advanced and more um, uh, evolved now than it was. 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but it's still here and it's still offering you essentially what made you listen to it the first time you heard it. And, and that's the, that's the key really. And it's, and it's really hard to do in a, in a world like this where so many things are distracting you and, and it's hard to, to, to divide your time up the way you need to. I agree. And, you know, I, I I've, I'm teaching a class on podcasting currently, which is, the whole thing. And I'm like, oh, high schoolers, I'm 38 oh, and feel like I'm a thousand now. And oh, I was told yeah. in the I was told in the first class, you kind of remind me of my dad. I was like, ah, <laughs> and, yeah. and I don't have any kids. So that definitely felt like a quiver. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I teach at the I can't I couldn't teach at the high school level, man. My hands off to you. I don't have the patience. Uh, I have to teach people who are adults who I can just say, you know, here's the material. If you're having trouble, I'm happy to work with you. But you have a lot of responsibility to learn this stuff. I don't have to, you know, when, when they're in high school, um, so much more of that responsibility is on the teacher, you know, yeah. uh, which is hard. But but um, but I've done a lot of teaching at the college level, and I, I actually prefer that. It, it gives you a little distance, the age difference, and it can make you feel a little agent, but also 
um, you know, it provides some distance and it allows me to help them in a way that I couldn't help them if I was more like a peer. Mm. You know, I, uh, I, I always, when I was in school, I always thought the toughest thing was to be uh, a, a teacher's assistant. Um, you know, somebody who's just a few years older than the people who are in the class, but has to sometimes be a surrogate teacher. And it's hard to get that distance. And, and you know, you may not even feel like you have the experience or the knowledge to, to fill that role. Um, but, you know, in the work that I'm done at Duke and what I'm going to do at Indiana University, you know, I feel very secure in sort of being the surrogate parent who comes in and tries to coach them through what I'm trying to teach them. And I don't have to feel, you know, I, there's a distance there just because of the age. And, and I kind of like it. So I want to I ask you this question. Um, I've, I'm, I've been editing and revising as we've gone along, as, as someone would do. Uh, <laughs> um so I, I think in in journalism of like all types, and I'm a fledgling journalist, but in journalism of all types, I think there are certain like ethical questions that one, you know, has to has to ask in, in their approach and how they're maybe framing a story or how they're researching a story, what have you. Do you what do you think? those like let's say those two most important questions are and sort of the modern day landscape for journalists and perhaps if that connects with artists in any way kind of that sort of question like the sort of creative like approach because we're all creative right so sort of the journalistic and ethical component of that yeah i guess the two biggest ethical components of being a critic in the artistic space is um, independence. You know, it's it, when you're covering people who are charismatic and compelling figures, um, it is easy to get wrapped up in um, being attracted to them just because they're compelling people. You know, um, I, I've done several things on Roy Wood Jr., for example, and I feel like um, even though he's younger than me, I feel like we have a lot of common experiences. Um, I love his humor. You know, we we are very friendly, you know, um, and we have a mutual respect. Um, so but you do have to be careful that that doesn't cross the line into putting you in a situation where um, you know, you're, you're giving that subject too much latitude or you're giving them too much of the benefit of the doubt or you're not willing to say um, when they make a mistake or when they do something um, that deserves criticism. Huh. And so, um, you know, independence is, is important. And, you know, sometimes it's just independence from uh, covering people that you know in the industry and you like and you admire and being able to have a little bit of independence and be tough on them when they need it. Uh, some of it is um, financial independence. You know, I'm lucky I work for NPR, uh, which is an established national outlet. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine in terms of what I get paid and stuff like that. I'm a professional. Um, but there are people involved in covering entertainment who, who, who don't have steady paychecks or don't get paid well. And there's a lot of temptation to do things um, that might be ethically shady. You know, um, Vulture just had an extensive um, look at Rotten Tomatoes and the fact uh, or the allegation that there are 
uh, publicity firms out there that have cultivated groups of critics that they um, either pay or that they provide um, uh, you know uh, gifts to or or, or or give something to um, with the sort of tacit understanding that they would give good reviews to the projects that are represented by their clients. And, you know, if you're somebody who's struggling for every dollar and hustling for every freelance assignment and somebody comes along and, off and, and, and offers you money or offers you free things or offers you access to celebrities and, and with the tacit understanding that your coverage is going to be favorable, it is it is hard, harder to turn that down. Uh, so so independence is one big, important ethic. The other big, important ethic is transparency. Hmm. Um, you know, there's another uh, scandal. I don't know if you'd call it a scandal, controversy. There's another controversy that's emerging today where the, the New Yorker just published a story about Hassan Minhaj, um, you know, former Daily Show correspondent, former host of Patriot Act on Netflix. He um, he starred in two stand-up specials, one of which won a Peabody Award. And the New Yorker published a piece noting that a lot of the stories that he told in those stand-up specials, especially Homecoming King, the one that won a Peabody, were, were not true. Um, he claimed to have met um, someone um, at, at his mosque who later turned out to be an undercover FBI agent. That person actually exists. That person was actually revealed to be an undercover FBI agent, but he had never worked in the town where Hassan Minhaj lived when he was growing up, and he didn't. He had never met him. Hmm. Um, it also turned out that he had uh, he told this heartrending story about um, asking this white girl to the prom and being set to take her to the prom, and and getting rejected on the night of the prom, and and that turned out to not be uh, entirely true either. She claims that she um, actually uh, told him she couldn't go to the dance many days before a few days before the dance, huh. and um, and and the popularity of the stand-up special led to people figuring out who she was and led to her, her uh, getting, you know, harsh blowback on social media and from other people um, because they believe Hassan Minaj's version of what happened. Uh, he also said that um, his family had received an envelope filled with white powder and that they thought their daughter had been exposed to anthrax and they went to the hospital. Um, he did get an envelope that was filled with white powder, but um, he knew pretty quickly that it wasn't anthrax. His daughter was never exposed to it, and they never went to the hospital, and nobody connected with it. the show even realized that it had happened. So so, um, so you're in this gray area of, you know, we know that comics often exaggerate circumstances to tell jokes, but when the core of your um, comedy is I'm making fun of things that actually happened to me, and then it turns out those things that you said actually happened to you did not happen. Right. <laughs> right. Then, um, and, 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 you know, frankly, I think a lot of this would have been solved if he had just been more transparent with his audience about when he was exaggerating things. Yeah. And he, and he, and he knows, and everybody, uh, you know, his fans know that the power in a lot of those stories came from believing that they actually happened. Right. And, and so, you know, finding out that he made, not just that he exaggerated elements of it, but that he made up stuff. You know, his daughter did not go to the hospital. 
He never met an FBI informant at his mosque. You know, those are central parts of those stories that make that make them entertaining and poignant. And to find out that they're completely made up is, um, you know, that's disappointing. And that and that changes the the reception that you would have to the material. You can't, you, you know, people want to say, oh, he's a comic, but it, but it matters. So uh, in that same vein, though, I think transparency for critics is important, too. So, you know, it's important to um, to. Um, um, and, and I think it makes the stories better. You know, if you're if you're writing a review and you're having a reaction to something uh, because of something in your past or because you've had some contact with the artist before or because, um, you know, the you know, they're depicting something that, you know, about mm-hmm. you, you'd experienced it. I think I think that can add to the criticism that you're doing. But but it is kind of important to try and be transparent with your audience about um, you know, why you're reviewing something or uh, why you feel the way you do about it or why you're telling the story you're telling about it. You know, um, you don't have to go overboard, but, but you know, I mean, going back to the Hassan Minaj the, um, of it all, yeah. um, one of the things that I keep saying to people who say, well, he's just a comedian. Why is it such a big deal? Well, my, my comeback is, well, then why didn't he just say what actually happened? Right. <laughs> like, right. like, like, why did he let the audience believe things were true about that story that weren't true? Right. Obviously, he did it because it made the story better. Right. right. And one reason it made the story better was because everybody believed it had actually happened. And if they had known the actual circumstances, then it, the joke wouldn't have had the impact. And maybe the, the stand-up special wouldn't have had the impact. So, you know, um, it, it, that that's the answer I also have for transparency. If people say, "Well, why do you care about X, Y, and Z?" I'm like, "Well, well, well, why not be transparent?" You yeah. know, what's what's the argument against being transparent? But that but the thing about being transparent is that um, it's also important for the audience to know that you have a habit of being honest with them every time you create uh, criticism or you you create work. And, um, you know, again, they're connected to the Hassan Minhaj thing. Uh, the reason why it might be troubling for people is then you you have to ask, um, you know, he's hosting these shows where a big part of the show is that it talks about things that actually happened. You know, he did, he had this show called Patriot Act on, on Netflix. And he's being talked about as possibly being the next uh, host of The Daily Show. And so... Um, you know, those are instances where you have to trust that the core of the joke that you're being told actually happened. You have to trust that it actually happened uh, and that it's not uh, completely made up. So, um, you know, uh, I'm sure that eventually Hassan will come out on the other end of this. And, um, and you know, he may have to do a little bit to sort of prove to the public that he's learned his lesson. Um, um and I'm not, you know, we'll, we'll see where the controversy goes. I mean, I, I don't know that it means that he shouldn't have to be able to host the Daily Show or whatever. But, um, but what we've what we've learned from seeing um, other people who were fabulous kind of unmasked in public is that you know it, it's really just one thing. You know, if you if you find that that they've made something up, um, you you should be skeptical about everything that they've done. 
uh, because often if it's a big thing that they've made up, it's not the first time that they've done it. Um, so, and, and, and even in the comedy space, the kind of comedy that John Oliver and The Daily Show and Patriot Act, you know, this topical based in the news, um, I found this funny fact that, you know, points out the absurdity of politics or whatever, you know, credibility is a part of the humor. And, and if you feel like you can't trust what the person is telling you is true uh, versus the parts that they are obviously exaggerating for humor, then, you know, it kind of makes it tougher to take in the whole presentation. So um, that's true for critics as well. You know, you want to try and have a track record of being honest with the audience just so they can comfortably trust whatever you tell them and they don't have to, you know, read between the lines of what you're writing or you know, oh, we see really, you know, does what's his connection to the person that he's writing about or whatever, but they can just read what you're saying and know that you have told them all the relevant facts as far as you know, yeah. and that you have disclosed um, whatever they might need to know that might affect your process as much as you can, you know. And, you know, there may be times when you forget something or there may be times when you overlook a disclosure that's that's perfectly natural yeah. but you don't want to be in the habit of doing that you know you want to be transparent with your audience as transparent with the, your audience as you can be yeah um thank you that's you know even something to think about from from this sort of standpoint where you know um doing doing interviews and folks say hey pull up come out and i was like i don't know and or even my approach and you know how i interview people and, and things of that nature i try to stay as neutral as, as possible. And I just talk about not being able to fake enthusiasm and, and all of this different stuff, yeah. um, you know, in those conversations. And, you know, whenever it's something that feels like it's going to be a puff piece or they're expecting just, this is just a marketing thing. It's like, nah, I don't, I don't really want to do that. I want to have what feels like a real conversation and get some insight from the guest. Right. Exactly. Well, it's like that old joke, you know, what works is authenticity. And once you figure out how to fake that, you, you're in the clear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on it. <laughs> um, so let me, let me, let me uh, real quick, and it's not necessarily a real quick sort of answer, but we'll, we'll do our best here. Sure. Um, I want to talk about race baiter real quick. I, I see it over your shoulder, obviously. Yeah. And um, yes. Uh, so, you know, in, in sort of like, so, you know, quickly, Tell us, you know, what was the thinking going into the book and ultimately, you know, sort of like how it shaped your sort of career post book or, you know, post release? Yeah. So this one is easy. Uh, basically, I had done a lot of reporting looking at how um, different media outlets use prejudice and stereotypes to uh, to make money. And and back then, you know, this book came out uh, almost 11 years ago. So uh, so back then, these media outlets were much more subtle about how they were doing what they're doing. You know, nowadays, Fox News is so blatant about how it race baits and how it favors the conservative, um, con uh, conservative politics and the GOP that you know it may sound funny to say that i had to write a book to sort of examine how they do that but back then they were much more subtle and they didn't necessarily admit that they were um favoring conservative politics even amongst uh, their opinion hosts yeah. so um 
so the book was a was an attempt to sort of pull together all these things that I've been noticing about how media deals with race and, you know, times when commercial concerns would make them hesitant to deal with race, times when commercial concerns would make them lean into prejudice and stereotypes, um, times when, uh, you know, a, a story like the, the shooting death of Trayvon Martin kind of became national news. And, and, and it's so interesting, you know, I thought when I wrote the book, that the timeline from when Trayvon Martin was killed to when it became international news was fast. And it was something like two weeks. <laughs> and it's like nowadays, I mean, you know, uh, I think uh, if I'm remembering right, when George Floyd got killed, it was I think he was killed on a Saturday and it was national news like by that Monday. Right. And I and I think it would have been national news the next day if um, he had been killed during a week. Um, if I'm remembering it right, you might have to check that. But but um, but so 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 um, so it's interesting. So many trends that I highlighted in the book are much faster and rapid and more obvious now, but they weren't back then. And so I figured I'd like to write a. I wanted to write a book because I wanted to present myself as an expert on media, and writing a book elevates your status as an expert. Uh, I wanted to be able to give presentations where I could go to a library, for example, and give a speech and not charge them anything, but still make a little bit of money from my trouble by selling copies of the book. Um, I wanted to, um, I noticed, you know, I'd done a little adjunct work teaching at um, colleges in Florida. And I realized that there was no book out there that pulled together all this stuff in something that could be like a textbook. Um, so I also wanted to create a book that could be a resource for people who wanted to talk about this stuff um, that they could, you know, if they were teaching a class on race and media, they could just buy this book and have their students read it rather than what I was doing, which was I'd find a, a magazine article here and a magazine article there. And I'd find, you know, one entry in a book. Um, so I'd have them read a chapter of this book and a chapter of that book. You know, one time I taught a course where I had I had them reading excerpts from three different books, plus a bunch of different links to, you know, magazine articles. And and so I just figured if I could write one book where a bunch of that stuff is in there, yeah. then you only have to get one thing, you know. And so I kind of wrote the book that I wished I had when I was teaching uh, some of these courses. So all that kind of came together. Uh, to to make sense uh, for me to write the book and and it all kind of worked that way you know when the book came out um you know a, a few different places university of south florida california state university adopted it as textbook um and i was able to give public presentations where i talked about the ideas in the book um and i had a little more credibility because i had written a book yeah. <laughs> and and i was able to speak at churches and libraries and places where normally um you know there wouldn't be a fee associated and i could make a little bit of money by selling the book and and spread my my message to audiences who didn't have to pay anything to to talk about it so um so it all worked pretty much the way that i that i hoped it would and uh the only problem i've had is just uh finding the energy to write a follow-up which i really need to do but well, you know, master strategist, I'm hearing this. <laughs> That's been the theme of this conversation. And um, this is this has truly been a treat. And, and thank you so much. I feel like, sure. like I don't know, like I, I want to be like you when I grow up. I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, well, um, you know, um, like I said, man, I just feel like um, mostly it was 
keeping an eye out and and taking inspiration from other people and watching what they did and then trying to figure out where I wanted to be using that as inspiration and then just working really hard to get there. You know, it, it, it's, it's just those things. And, um, you know, uh, I, I hope that it's an inspiration for a lot of people to try and do the same thing in their own space, you know, figure out what your goals are, um, figure out the most practical way to get there. That makes sense. Uh, and then work really hard towards making that happen while also being open to inspiration and opportunity when it comes in a way that you don't expect. Um, when I was in college, you know, I wanted to be uh, an arts critic with a national voice. And I always thought it would be as a pop music critic at a major newspaper or as someone writing for like Rolling Stone magazine or some national uh, magazine. But, you know, when I came to St. Petersburg to be their pop music critic, um, you know, the print industry started to decline and those opportunities started to um, recede. And uh, and I began to realize that if I wanted to be an arts critic with a national voice, I might have to consider going to a different platform. And then NPR kind of presented itself. And I'd been a fan of NPR for a very long time. So um, so it was perfect, you know, and and. And, you know, the great thing about NPR is that it's a pub, it's public media. So it's values about diversity and about uh, serving the public interest uh, are really very much in line with my values as a critic. So um, if, it just feels like a very comfortable place to be from that standpoint. I don't feel I feel like the kind of journalism and criticism that I want to practice is the kind of journalism and criticism that they value and that they expect. And so it, it, it it's a it's a wonderful meeting uh, of of platform and journalists. It's wonderful. It's great to hear. So all of the goodwill that I've established during this conversation. We're about to just ruin all of it with these rapid fire uh, okay. questions. Okay. They're, 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 they're regular questions. Just uh, the only preface I'll give, because I like to set the stage, just don't overthink them. That's, that's always the thing. Um, okay. All right. Uh, you know, you're a TV guy, so I got to ask, mm -hmm. what are you currently watching? Um, my TV watching is always uh, a month or two ahead of everybody else. So I just finished watching... Um, the first six, six episodes of the new season of Fargo, which doesn't come out until November. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the middle of watching Gen V, which is a spinoff of The Boys, yeah. um, that uh, doesn't come out for uh, another few weeks. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what other stuff I really, I, I'm, I'm watching the last few episodes of Billions, which haven't aired yet. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if I wanna write something about that show. Um, and, and I'm also trying to figure out, you know, like what else uh, do I need to watch in advance? Like, like there's other stuff that I've already watched yeah. uh, that won't come out for a while. So I have to figure out like, what else do I need to get under my belt to see what's coming? I, I, I uh, the, the new Frasier revival, um, I have to watch that. I know I, I have access to screeners of it. I, I haven't sat down and watched it yet, but I need to sit down and watch that. Um, so it's that's kind of where I'm, I'm at right now. I'm trying to watch stuff that's coming out in October and November, so I'm prepared and and I can suggest what we can review. Um, two two ones, two more. Um, what is your favorite color? You're obviously blued out right now, so I got to <laughs> ask. I well, you know, as far as dress goes, I sort of go through phases where you know if I see a bunch of stuff that I like in a color, I I kind of go for it. So blue is is uh, 
has, has been where my headspace has been for the last year or two. Um, favorite color. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I love black when it's appropriate and when it's, uh, deployed correctly. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily wear a ton of black, but I do like to wear it effectively. You know, and I think it looks really sharp when when you when you do that. Uh, I do like blues um, a lot too. I do, like, yeah, I like I like blue quite a lot, and I like uh, I like purple quite a lot as well. That was a very thoughtful answer. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is this is the last one. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm very curious and interested in sort of the the eating habits of folks. Like you know, when I'm watching something. I'm sitting there, you know, with the girl face. We're watching probably winning time or something. Um, sure. I, I just have, got the finale episode and just got access to the finale episode of this season. I got to so catch up. <laughs> got to catch up. I'm like four episodes behind or something. But uh, yeah. I, I'm, it's like it's like, um, you know, you have like in, in a wine pairing with a certain meal. I have a food <laughs> pairing or a snack pairing with a certain show. Sure, so, sure, sure. What, like whatever the show that that just comes to mind for you, tell me what the food pairing or the snack pairing would be if you're snacking while watching that show. Oh yeah, well see, you caught me at a bad time because I uh, I ha I've had to lose weight, so I've had to shift how I eat, which means uh, I can't snack. Um, that's one of the one of the big things is you really got to cut down on snacking. I also have to cut down on, um, I have to be very selective about cars that I eat. So that means no chips. That means no pasta. That means no rice. Then, you know, that means, you know, and even, even sort of nuts and peanuts and things like that, you know, you have to be careful about how much those you eat. So I, I've changed my eating a lot in the last month and a half or so. Um, I, you know, popcorn is always, I, I just feel like that's a universal, if you're sitting in front of the TV, you know, to eat kind of thing. Uh, for me now, it, a lot of it is fruit. So grapes and um, applesauce, believe it or not, I'm still a big fan of applesauce. I, I, had, to be careful. I had to be careful about eating it because I, you know, I can eat too much. And I used to, I used to eat cereal, uh, but I can't do that anymore. That's too much sugar. So I, I've pretty much given up cereal. Um, and I would highly recommend that everyone do that <laughs> because, uh, I mean, the thing that's the, uh, and I, you know, I don't want to sound like a, you know, when somebody freshly alters their diet, all they can do is talk about what they eat. And I promise I won't do that to you. But the thing I have learned is that you can make simple adjustments to your diet and you can lose more weight than you think, and you will feel better. And one of the things that you really have to do is be careful about the sugars that you uh, consume. So if there's a way to, to cut out simple things like don't eat cereal, um, especially kitty like cereal, yeah. um, is, is, is there a way to, to cut down on or cut out chips and potato chips and stuff like that? You know, even, even popcorn, uh, can, uh, can have a bit, but if you're careful with it, you know, that's, that's the lighter version uh, of all that stuff. Um, you know, of course, you know, cookies and candies and things like that, if you can cut those down or, or eliminate those. But, you know, you don't have to you don't have to make like huge changes and come up with a whole meal plan and all that shit. You can just kind of cut things out. So when it comes to snacking, you know, be judicious about it. Uh, don't snack very much and try to choose snacks that are healthy um, or that uh, don't have a lot of sugar in them. 
and 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 just stop drinking soda. You know, stop drinking soda. So one, I want to thank you for coming on and spending some time with me. This is this has been enlightening. I I, I feel like this is like the highlight of the week for me. And, wow, nice, man. Yeah, absolutely. And two, I want to invite and encourage you to share with the listeners where they can check out your work, um, social media, website, any of that fine stuff in this sort of shameless plug portion as we wrap up here. The floor sure. is yours. All right. Uh, well, of course, a great deal of my work is at um, NPR.org. So you can go there and there's a search bar at the top of MP- the uh, the website where you can plug in my name and it will bring up um, uh, a queue that has all the stories that I've done, digital and audio, and you can uh, read them, uh, read transcripts or listen to them if you're so inclined. Um, my personal website is ericdeggins.com. And there's a lot of work and links there as well. Um, uh, particularly, there's a roster of my speaking engagements. So, you know, I'll be at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin next week. Um, I'll be appearing in Bloomington, Indiana at a fundraiser for the NPR station there the week after that. Um, I've got some other things coming up, so you can keep track of stuff uh, there. And, of course, you know, I'm on Twitter slash X at Deggins. I'm on Instagram at E Deggins. Um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, if you go to my personal website, ericdeggins.com, you'll see links to all the other social media platforms there, as well as uh, some videos. You know, when I was on um, Samantha B's show, Full Front, all that's up there. Um, when I interviewed the correspondents of The Daily Show for South by Southwest, that's up there. Uh, I gave a talk based uh, on my book about how to talk about race across racial lines, a TEDx talk that's up there. Uh, There's a lot of cool stuff there, so you can check it out. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Eric Charles Deggins for coming on to the podcast um, and sharing a bit of his journey and his insights. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture, and community in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Mm -hmm.